Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Healthcare spending in the United States is much, much higher than anywhere else in the world. One big contributor is the cost of prescription drugs. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, prescription drug spending in the U.S. is about twice that of many comparably large and wealthy countries. What does the high cost of prescriptions mean for millions of Americans? And why do we have this problem? For many people, high costs means skimping on medications or cutting their pills in half. Some people simply walk away when they hear the prices of their medicines at the pharmacy. It's either that or missing a car payment, or they fill their prescriptions but skip meals to pay for them. Does it have to be this way? What can we do about this? Our guest today, Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's deeply involved in efforts to understand and reform drug pricing. Dr. Kesselheim, welcome to Turn on the Lights. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Turn on the Lights. This is an area of pharmaceuticals and drug policy and costs in the country that has is on everybody's mind, and I don't know anyone better able than you to help us think this through. So thanks for taking time out of your busy day. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Okay, let me start with the big, with kind of a big question, and you can take it any way you want. So I think of all of the issues in American healthcare that are tabletop issues for families and people and patients, probably pharmaceutical costs, drug costs is near the top. Costs in general are at the top, but particularly this, what seems to be a crazy system of pricing and payment for drugs. Okay, so uh, we'll get into some of the details, but maybe you could start with a, a chartering comment or two. How do we get into this? Inbrutable, unpredictable, and basically high in the United States. Thanks. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons why drug costs are high in the United States. Prescription drugs are one of the most important medical interventions that we have, and they provide a lot of benefits to patients. And in terms of medical interventions, just about anybody who interacts with the healthcare system is going to is probably going to interact with prescription drugs. And so that makes it a pretty ubiquitous issue for patients who are, who, are, who are dealing with their medical issues. And then the reasons that we have very high prices in the United States fundamentally is that uh, the United States is unique among industrialized countries in that we let prescription drug companies set whatever price they want. And then at the same time, put restrictions on the various payers that do exist in the U.S. in their ability to negotiate with the brand name with the brand name company and as a result of those two forces that that, are, that kind of puts a consistent upward pressure on drug prices and then of course the price of the drug isn't necessarily what individual patients experience individual patients might experience a copayment or a deductible and those have been rising as well because high prices get translated into and because in certain insurance companies are transferring more of the responsibility for drug prices on to patients over time, 
And so but, that leads to... Aaron, I want, can I pause you for a second? There's, there's a lot that you're saying here that I think it's complicated what you're describing. And I want to make sure we unpack some of this for our audience here. The first thing you described was a phenomenon of us not regulating pl- price, right? The drug companies can put the price wherever they want to put it. And insurance companies don't have the ability to negotiate that price. And that you said is unique to the United States. That's not something that you find in other countries. That's right. Among industrialized countries, there's the usual process is that is a two-step process. The first step is that the regulator approves the drug. And so in the US, that's the FDA. In the Europe, that's EMA and in Health Canada and the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia. And then in every other country, there is a second step in which a health technology assessment organization evaluates the drug and determines its benefits as compared to other products in the market, and then feeds that information into a national negotiator that helps negotiate a price of the drug. In the US, we only have that first step. We only have the regulator. So we have a regulator that approves a medicine, but we have no mechanism to actually establish the relative utility of a medicine and then set a price. That's right. That's right. We have individual insurance companies do try to do that and do that to, to differing extents and with differing success, but we don't have a national program that does that and then can right. leverage the national market to identify a fair price based on that evaluation. So, so can you give us a couple, do you, have, 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 do you happen to have top of your head a couple of examples of difference in pricing between an American drug and the same drug in, 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 in say, the European democracies? I think that on average, the difference that emerges for brand name, for new brand name drugs is about a difference of about uh, two to four times. I think that was what the data. So it's a multiple. It's not a percentage. of. It's, it's a multiple. It's two to four times more expensive in the U.S. than it is in a European country. Or Canada. Yes. I've, I've heard the quite prices differ across those different countries as well. Sure. Uh, and I think that on average, I think that for the new brand name drugs, it can be anywhere from about two to four times higher in, in the US. I've heard drug companies representatives say that's because we're the fountain of innovation. That money, that extra price is going into the um, America's role of being the drug inventor on the planet. And so that's why it costs more here. What's your thought about that? I think that there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical of the claim that the reason drug prices in America are high is because of the cost of research and development. I think it's, I think it is fair that, that the, to say that the research and development costs are high for prescription drugs. These are expensive to develop and there is a lot of risk involved. That said, the brand name companies spend 10 to 20% of their revenues on research and development. They spend much higher percentages of their revenues on marketing and administration or on stock buybacks. And there is a lot of research and development funded by the public through the National Institutes of Health that provides the early stage development for a lot of drugs and even late stage development for some drugs as well. And it is also the case that uh, drug companies are extremely profitable and have been very profitable for the last couple of decades. Uh, I think they are the most profitable market uh, industry in the world. I think that it is true that for-profit companies make the majority of their revenues on U.S. patients. That's also because the U.S. is the largest market. But I don't think that if 
we were to pay fairer prices in the U.S. for prescription drugs, that would necessarily translate into less meaningful innovation for a number of reasons. Is it true that the U.S. is the source of the majority of plurality of drug innovation in the world, or is that not accurate? I think that there have been, I think that it, it certainly is the case that the U.S. drives a lot of pharmaceutical innovation. And that's in part because we have the National Institutes of Health, which is a $50 billion a year uh, generator of ideas and insights into pathophysiology and targets and receptors for drugs and new tools and mechanisms. And that's no, there aren't other countries that make that sort of investment into the infrastructure of research and development that we do. But that's not in the price of the drug in the U.S. That's coming out of our tax dollars. Correct. We've already paid for that one time over through tax. That's right. That's right. So, Aaron, let's go back to the kitchen table moment now. So you've told us a little bit about how the price gets determined differently here in the U.S. overall. But you said that the price that is set is different than what you might pay when you go to the pharmacy. So can you tell us a little bit about how it works from a price being set by the pharmaceutical company and your insurer? to how we actually experience that cost when we go to a pharmacy? Sure, there are, the price of a drug is the one that's set by the company, and then the drug, that price is paid for. And there are two different ways that we pay for that price. The first is through insurance, pharmaceutical insurance that people have through their employer or through the government. There's still a fraction of people a small fraction, 10 to 15% of people don't have prescription drug insurance. And so they will still pay the sticker price. Or if you have insurance that is that has a high deductible, you might pay this the sticker price or close to the sticker price for your... And, and by a high deductible, we mean th your first bit of the cost, which we insurance kicks in after you pay whatever your deductible is. So if your deductible is $500, then you pay the first $500 of your of your cost. And then the insurance kicks in. If it's $2,000 and you pay $2,000 of the cost and then the insurance kicks in. So if you have a high deductible plan, you pay more as a consumer of the total cost of whatever your healthcare is, including the, the drug cost. Exactly. And that's, again, that's the insurance side of your payments. I think that on average, I, again, I think that, the, that about 15% of drug costs are paid directly out of pocket and about 85% of drug costs are paid through insurance, either private or public insurance in the country. The out-of-pocket costs are the ones that are experienced when patients go to the pharmacy to pick up their to pick up their prescriptions, say, and they'll be charged a certain amount. And that could either be some fraction of the list price in the case of a high deductible plan like you're talking about, or it could be a copay that the insurance company negotiates with uh, with your employer. And that copay is a maybe $10, maybe $25, $50 that you pay on a per prescription basis. Then the rest of the cost is paid for by the insurance company. But of course, you pay for that anyway, also because you pay for that through premiums and the, or you pay through that through the, if you're a, if it's a public insurance company, that the taxpayers pay through that, for that, through the investments in the, in, in Medicare or Medicaid or whatever whatever public insurance company you're talking about. So when I stand online at a pharmacy, <clears throat> I have a feeling that we're playing like roulette or something that I remember I was in a pharmacy just last week and the 
gentleman ahead of me in line was obviously completely confused about the fee for the drug he was getting. It was He was being charged something like 90 or $100. He said, but last time it was $3. What's going on here? There's a, a kind of instability to pricing at the ticket window, as it were, it seems to me. Am I right about that or am I overreacting? No, I think that is a big complaint that a lot of patients have is that they don't necessarily know what they're going to be charged and those prices can might fluctuate and and that can be very frustrating. So I think that the lack of transparency, and this is another, maybe a theme in your podcast to turn on the lights, but I think a lack of transparency here is a is another major contributor to the discontent there is around around drug prices. And the fact that it can fluctuate isn't is part of that. All right. So getting to transparency, I'm going to go into a really foggy area now. I got to admit for me, and remember I was administrator of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, so I should know that there's an area of drug pricing that absolutely confuses me. It's called rebates. Could you explain the so-called rebate system in words that are not just our participants, our listeners can understand? All of us can understand. understand. <laughs> okay. What the heck's going on there? Sure. So we've been talking a lot so far about the list price of a drug, the price of a drug. What a rebate is, is that if for certain drugs, insurance companies, the individual insurance companies are able to negotiate with the manufacturer to reduce the price by a little bit. Now, they don't change the list price. Instead, what they do is they negotiate a rebate that they pay back to the insurer. So the what the insurance company will do is they'll say, the drug company will say, this drug is $1,000. And it, the insurance company is then tries to negotiate. And what they'll say is, give us a 20% rebate and we will feature your drug on a uh, different tier of our formulary. Because what insurance companies can do is they can set up formularies with different tiers. So a, a generic drug, for example, may be on the lowest tier, and that's a $5 copay. And then there's a middle tier that's a $25 copay and a high tier that's a $50 copay. And so if you're a patient and you go to the pharmacy, it is more likely that you will be able to pay for the drugs on the lowest tier. And so let's slow this down. The drug company says the price is a thousand. The insurance company says, "Oh, cut us a deal." And so they say, "Okay, it's still a thousand dollar price, but we're going to give you back two hundred dollars." So you're actually, in dear insurance company, you're only paying eight hundred. So now, right. what happens? That to me right. is so a patient. The insurance company says, "If you, if, yeah, we'll pay you a thousand dollars, but if you give us back twenty two two hundred on it, and you, know, you make the rebate twenty percent, then we will feature your drug on a cheaper tier, which will make it accessible to more patients. We'll put it on the ten dollar copay tier rather than the fifty dollar copay tier. Exactly. So and the, the volume other- of purchaser, the volume of consumers that will use that drug will be higher. And but this is the rebate is a deal between the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company. The consumer yeah. never sees the value. It's the rebate goes between these two entities, right? The consumer sees the value in that if the in that again, the difference between ten and fifty dollars for a thousand dollar drug means that sure. the insurance company is still paying the vast majority of that price. And so what the way the consumer sees the value is that if the insurance company pays less, then the insurance company won't raise its premiums overall on all consumers. And the individual patient, again, still is exposed to just a relatively small percentage of that. Not um, to be rude, but would we not call this a kickback in most industries or am I missing something here? It can seem like a, it can shade into a kickback, but it is legal and it is very it is common in certain 
parts of the drug market. There are particularly where there is there are a lot of brand name drugs available, as in among inhalers, for example, or among uh, insulin products. Those rebates can get can get quite high. Where, where there are not a lot of drugs available, or where there are required coverage mandates, for example, among cancer drugs, where there's requirements in state law or in federal law that insurance companies cover all cancer drugs, then rebates are actually quite low and quite because there's no incentive for a drug company to provide a rebate if the insurance company has to list it on its formulary. Yeah, so not to be dense, why go through the mechanics, the gymnastics of a rebate instead of just saying the price is lower? We're lowering the price to you. Why, why this rebate language? It's a very good question. It's one of those things that has developed, evolved in the market over time because the organizations that negotiate on behalf of the insurance companies, which are called pharmaceutical benefit managers, have grown in, in over the last 20 years to offer these offer rebates as a way of as a way of managing the insurance company's formularies. And these kinds of rebates have just developed as a tool that the PBMs have used to try to manage the formularies of the insurance companies that they work for. And What's a formulary, Aaron? What's a formulary? A formulary is the list of drugs that an insurance company offers to it, makes available to its patients. Aaron, My what? head's spinning, Kater. You better take over here. Or <laughs> maybe we can shift gears a little bit and talk about the policy environment right now. What's happening in Washington uh, right now? Uh, there was a, a major piece of legislation that I'm curious, actually, whether you think it's a major piece of legislation to begin with, but a, a piece of legislation around called the Inflation Reduction Act, which included in it somewhat unheralded provisions around starting to negotiate some of these prices that we talked about at the beginning. Do you think that's a big deal? Is is that a big deal? What? How does it matter? And what are your thoughts on what's happening right now around that set of provisions? Yeah, so I think the Inflation Reduction Act is a big deal. And as we started talking about at the beginning of, of our conversation, the U.S. historically is the only industrialized country that does not negotiate drug prices with it in pharmaceutical companies at the national level, at the government level. And so the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year, changes that for the first time in history. And as a result, I do think it is a so a historic piece of, of legislation. And so what- so tell, tell us a little bit about how it allows us to do that. So what's in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and how does it for the first time allow us to start negotiating prices? What? It, it gives Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices after a drug has been on the market for anywhere from nine to 13 years, depending on the drug. So for the highest spending drugs in Medicare, for drugs that have been on the market for nine to 13 years and subject to some other exclusions, Medicare can negotiate the prices of 10 of them starting in two years and then 15 the year after, 15 the year after that, 20. The so eventually getting up to slowly ramping up. But what, will, what that will mean is that for this subset of drugs that have our top selling drugs that have been on the market for nine to 13 years, at that point, Medicare can start a process of trying to negotiate a fair price for them based on the benefits that they provide to patients and other factors. It's a small number of drugs. It's for drugs that have already been on the market for a long time, but it is a big step because Medicare really had never had this authority before. 
And will this have an effect on commercial insurance as well? So Medicare is going to do this, which of course is a big deal. Many, millions of beneficiaries, tens of millions of beneficiaries. But will this have an effect on the wider market of insurance organizations? In your view, is it something that's coming now? I think it will have an effect indirectly on the commercial market. So that, and there are two ways it'll do that. The first way is that another thing that the Inflation Reduction Act does is that it prevents pharmaceutical companies from raising prices year over year in Medicare, which is, again, something that pharmaceutical companies historically have done without any restriction. And the Inflation Reduction Act makes it unprofitable for pharmaceutical companies to raise prices in Medicare. And since Medicare is such a big buyer of prescription drugs, what that may do is it may prevent companies from raising their prices across the board because if Medicare is a major purchaser of the drugs, then, then they just won't raise their prices and it, that will affect the commercial insurance market in a secondary way. And then the other way it would affect it is that if there's a negotiated price and Medicare is paying less, private insurance companies will see that and they may be able to use that as more leverage to negotiate their own prices. But that's so we'll, we may see some bleed over into the commercial market that way. Let, let me get into a different segment of the drug market, generic drugs. These are drugs that are off patent. They don't, they're not generally known by a brand name. They're known by their chemical name. And some of them have been around for a long time. There has been a bit of a pattern that I'd love you to explain for a minute in which somehow drugs that have been around for a long time and are very inexpensive get patented or get owned by a single company that then can jack up the price enormously. I remember some examples like the drug colchicine, I recall was is a very old standing drug for gout and somehow it got under patent control and the company that produced it then raised the price enormously. I don't remember the multiple, but it was big. What's going on there and what should we done about it? Great that you brought that up. So we've been talking most of the time today so far about brand name drugs, which make up only about 10% of prescriptions. 90% of prescriptions in the US are generic drugs and actually on average, the U.S. pays less for generic drugs than in other countries because of the impact of the market in helping set prices for these generic drugs close to the cost of production. And so so brand, name mean, would... brand name means a drug that's owned by a drug company sold under a, a trademark name by that company as opposed to generic drugs, 90% generic. Yeah, I'm just curious, why would, is it because of volume, Aaron, that the generic price is lower here in the U.S.? Why is it that we have an advantage on generic pricing here in the U.S.? Generally speaking, it's because in the U.S., generic companies compete with each other and are interchangeable with each other at the pharmacy, which is when a physician writes a prescription and a patient takes it to the pharmacy and it's and the drug has generic alternatives, then the pharmacy can fill it with whatever generic drug they have in stock. And patients are not able to identify which generic drug they want to fill their prescription with. It's just whichever generic drug stocks the pharmacy. And as you mean, you mean it's the same, it's the same drug, the same chemical, just made by a different generic manufacturer. By a different right? company, yeah. But the FDA approves them and they're all interchangeable with each other. And as a result of that dynamic, generic manufacturers compete with each other to make products as cheaply as possible. With, according to FDA approvals and high quality and everything like that. But as a result, the price falls down close to the cost of production. In other countries, they just like they, they negotiate the price for the market with a single branding drug, sometimes in those other countries, they'll also identify a particular generic drug that they will 
want to serve the whole market. And since there isn't that kind of like very you know, intense competition, that price may actually be higher than the competitive price that's set in the U.S. So we're allowing market forces to basically act in a competitive fashion in the generics market here in the U.S. But back to Don's question there of why do some generics end up costing so much more through different processes? Yeah, what happens is that for a, for a lot of generic, for generic drugs where there's a lot of prescriptions and a lot of generic companies are interested in making them, there's competition and the prices are low. For certain generic drugs where there isn't a lot of competition, generic manufacturers are for-profit companies too, and they may stop making that product or and move on to whatever a new generic product they want to make. And as a result, for especially for some older products, there may be relatively few generic manufacturers making the market and making the drug. And if there are only one or two generic manufacturers making the drug, you get into a situation not unlike a brand name drug where there's only one manufacturer of it. And those generic manufacturers can take advantage of that and raise the prices. The colchicine example that you mentioned was actually even different than that. The colchicine example was a relatively unique example of a drug that had been around even before the FDA existed. And so it was grandfathered into the FDA and the FDA eventually got around to wanting to bring colchicine under its umbrella. And in doing so, gave one manufacturer of colchicine a monopoly and kicked all the other manufacturers off the market. And then as a result of that, that that company acted like a brand name company and raised the price from whatever, 50 cents a pill to $5 a pill. And it was a, it, it made it harder for a lot of people with gout to get this very useful medication. All right. So let's get out of the weeds I brought us into here and just get this fixed. Okay. How do we get back on track in America? What our drug prices tend to be much higher, at least brand name drugs in other countries. Consumers are feeling more and more out of pocket costs and maybe many people of lower means are skipping meds. This looks out of control. Yet we don't want to shut down the innovation of the pharmaceutical world, what should we do? Put you in charge of the country, Aaron. What's the, what, what do we need to change? I guess I would say, so we need to think about these, the brand name issues and the generic issues a little bit differently. But in terms of the brand name issues, we have basically a situation where we give brand name companies market exclusivity through patents and other exclusivities and allow them and then give them free reign to charge whatever they want. And as a result, a lot of drugs that may not deserve it are sold for very high prices and there isn't very effective competition. And so I think what we need is a second step in the US, just like we have in other countries where there is an evaluation of the benefits of the drug and that information is then given to Medicare and the price of the drug is negotiated at the federal level. Like we, if Medicare, if the U.S. is the biggest purchaser of prescription drugs, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to leverage that to try to obtain a fair price for those drugs. And I think that if you do it, if you have a system like that and it works well, then what you'll do is you'll still pay a lot of money for really useful new drugs, but you'll pay a lot less for drugs that aren't useful. And I think that what we'll, what you'll do is you'll actually incentivized innovation that is maximally useful and maximally meaningful by still providing a, a good 
fair price, that may actually even be a high price for a useful new drugs, but pay equivalent to competition for less useful. You're you're describing a mechanism here, much like we have in other parts of the world, that would improve our ability to negotiate prices, potentially lower some of the brand name costs, improve some competition where it's necessary, and potentially actually make smarter research happen. What's the how realistic is the possibility of us creating such an entity here in the US? What's the political reality of such a thing at this time? Yeah. So I would say that also the a second important component of that is thinking about those out-of-pocket costs. Because if you are going to have a system that sort of helps develop and, and arrange for fair prices for important new drugs, we need to make sure that people can access them. And, and a system that we have right now where people get substantial, have substantial out-of-pocket spending for important new products just doesn't make a lot of sense because we want those products to get to people. So if we're going to have a system where we can determine fair prices for them and pay fair prices for them, then we also need a system where people can access them and reducing out-of-pocket spending can do that. I would say that the the, the way that we would pay for the system is by not spending a lot of money on drugs that aren't very useful. But as to your question as to how likely this is, yeah, I think it still is. It's a challenge because the pharmaceutical industry has a really powerful lobbying organization. They're They spend the most on lobbying than any other group. And that has made it really hard to get through any policies that might adversely affect pharmaceutical companies' pocketbooks. And again, I don't think this system would necessarily reduce the the profits that pharmaceutical companies would make, but what it would require is for them to be producing innovative drugs in order to make those profits uh, as they have been in the past and not to be able to make small tweaks on molecules or try to extend. I think that the pharmaceutical industry is concerned about this because they would they fear that, that this would reduce their revenues. But again, as I said, I feel like if drug companies are directed or are incentivized to produce more meaningful products, then that wouldn't necessarily reduce revenues if, they, if they're able to still develop really innovative products because we would still pay a lot of money in, for those kinds of drugs. Aaron, you were personally involved in a, a circumstance that raises some questions about the maybe the power of drug companies. You tell me, but this had to do with the federal, the Food and Drug Administration's approval of Adjahom, the a drug so allegedly helpful to the care of Alzheimer's disease. But you were one of the members of the advisory committee that recommended against its approval, and then you actually resigned from that advisory committee after the agency nonetheless approved the drug. Can you recount that story? What, what should we learn from that? Yeah, actually, I think this is a really good story that kind of describes well what we're talking about in, in our in this conversation, because Adahelm was a drug for Alzheimer's disease that was a, a monoclonal antibody directed at a, a certain protein that is um, associated with Alzheimer's disease in the brain called amyloid. And in its trials, basically, there wasn't really good evidence that the drug worked. There were two trials one of which was negative, one of which was very slightly positive, and the drug had really substantial risks. 40% of patients had brain swelling and bleeding. And nonetheless, the FDA approved it, and the pharmaceutical company set its price of $56,000 a year for this drug, which it assumed that Medicare would cover because Medicare covers all basically all FDA-approved drugs. And so the, the pharmaceutical company had developed this multi-billion dollar promotional campaign to get patient, physicians to prescribe this drug and, and to and set a price such that if even a small fraction 
of patients with Alzheimer's disease on Medicare receive this drug, we would end up spending more money on this drug than the entire budget of NASA. It was really a sort of a, a demonstration of how really low value, and in this case, arguably ineffective drugs can nonetheless be priced extremely high and can be set to be able to be prescribed. Now, in this case, I resigned from the committee, a couple other people did, and there was a big outcry about the drug. And ultimately, Medicare took a basically unprecedented step to say, actually, we're not going to just pay for this drug. We are going to only pay for this drug in the context of additional clinical trials, in which, at which point the drug company pulled the plug on the drug altogether. And now the drug isn't really offered for use. But is that another pathway, Aaron? You just described something that is an alternative to a new agency that would help to once a drug is passes, meets regulatory approval, then there's an evaluation, health technology assessment that then evaluates the drug and then the price is set. Is there a different mechanism here that you just described, which is CMS has the potential power to say, we're going to pay for this or not? CMS technically does have this pathway that it used in this case. Unfortunately, CMS doesn't have the resources or ability to apply this pathway in as many cases as it needs to. And it very rarely applies the pathway in the context of prescription drugs. Usually for an FDA approved drug, CMS will cover it. But yeah, I do think that CMS should use this pathway more often. The process for applying this pathway in this case was like two years of discussions and negotiation. CMS had to weather thousands of comments from angry Alzheimer's disease patients and people in Congress. And it was just, there was, despite that, CMS stood its ground and to its credit made this decision. But I don't, it's, and I agree with you that I would like to see this pathway used more frequently, but it's hard to use it. So I feel like- Tough road, for sure. I yeah, like it would require an investment. When I ran CMS, I, I immediately saw how limited the capacity to do this kind of work there. It was almost a secondary policy not to do it. Why did FDA approve the drug despite the negative recommendation of its own advisory group? That is still a mystery. There have been some investigations, and it looks like FDA and the company were had a lot of discussions, some of which were off the books, and maybe we maybe should have been more transparent about. It just, it seemed like the head of the division here just really believed in the drug and really wanted to see this drug get approved. But as to what was motivating him, I don't really know. But yeah, the, not only was it the advisory committee that voted unanimously against the drug, but the FDA's own biostatistics group didn't think that the drug should be approved. And there was a, a substantial outcry from the medical community the neurology community as well, where a lot of neurologists also said that it didn't seem like this was a this made sense as a as an approval. A lot of things that we don't know about the backstory to this drugs. Even end of the story. Do you, what's what are our listeners going to be experiencing at the pharmacy window in the next year or two? Are, are, are when it continue to see prices go up? Do you think they'll be mitigated? Do you what more transparency? Any changes in store? I think the biggest changes that people will see in the next in the short term is as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a cap on out-of-pocket spending for people in Medicare that is being implemented this year. For the very first time, people in, who, who have Medicare uh, and are going to be limited in their out-of-pocket spending over the course of, of the year. And in particular, there was a limit on out-of-pocket spending for insulin 
for patients in Medicare. I think that's the thing that people will experience most directly in the short term. And we talked about the negotiation part of the Inflation Reduction Act, but that's not going to actually be implemented for another few years. And otherwise, I think that people will still see high prices, especially if they're in insurance, commercial insurance companies, because those drugs will still be, those prices won't really change. Aaron, something else that we could ask you, there's a thousand other questions that we could probably go to, <laughs> that we could ask you, but something else I think that consumers might see is some noise being made by Mark Cuban and others. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, a businessman billionaire, has created a company, Cost Plus Drugs. Getting into this space, there's Civica RX that's allegedly trying to disrupt this space. There's several of these entrants now in the market trying to find solutions to this problem around drug pricing. What do you think about any of these? Are they any of them hold promise or are they a bunch of red herrings here? What's your thinking on some of these new entrants? Yeah, so I think these new entrants get back to the issue that we talked about before about high generic drug prices. And the Mark Cuban company is a good example of a company that's trying to make it easier for patients to get lower cost generic drugs by buying the generic drug directly from the manufacturer and selling it directly through the patient without going through insurance companies or PBMs where some of the incentives can sometimes be off and you can get high uh, co-payments for generic drugs when those generic drugs are, are otherwise very cheap. So we talked about co-payments earlier. So some insurance companies might set a $20 co-payment for the lowest tier of their drug. For certain generic drugs, a 30-day supply of the drugs, there's actually two bucks. And if you go into the store and you buy that drug through your insurance company, you're going to pay the $20 copay because you pay a $20 copay for every generic drug. If you bought the drug directly from the generic manufacturer like Mark Cuban's company is doing and offered it directly to patients, you could pay something closer to the $2 that 30-month supply costs. And so the Mark Cuban company is a novel approach to trying to make it so that generic drugs are more are cheaper for patients who buy them outside of their insurance companies. There's complications. Mark Cuban's company only make certain drugs available, not every drug. And it's you have to be savvy enough to be able to look it up on the internet and think enough ahead to mail to do it through mail order. And so it's not easy for every patient, but for certain patients, I think that it's a really interesting approach to try to address the problem of high-priced generic drugs. Aaron, we could you're an amazing translator of these issues for us. It's a it's unbelievable the range of issues that are in this very complex territory of what makes medications cost what they cost. It's a complicated formula, it's a complicated issue. You've you're an amazing interlocutor. Thank you for explaining so much of it to us here on the program. We could probably spend two or three programs on this. But Aaron, we like to close almost all of our conversations with a question about optimism and, and pessimism. Where are you these days on your in your view of this issue in American healthcare on the optimism to pessimism scale? I'm always optimistic. I, I think that the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act was passed last year is an important piece of legislation. And I am optimistic that it is being implemented correctly and that we will see the benefits of it in the next couple of years. I am optimistic that there is a lot of attention to this issue and that people recognize the impact that high drug prices can have on patients. But I'm also, I, I, get, I think that optimism is still tempered with a bit of reality to know that things aren't going to change unless policymakers and people force them to change because we're, there's a, a big entrenched for-profit 
system out there that makes a lot of money off of the current system. So I, I guess I would consider myself optimistic, but realistic about the prospect of things changing quickly. Thank goodness those policymakers and experts and leaders and everyone has someone like yourself to listen to. Aaron Kesselheim, thank you so much for joining us here on Turn on the Lights. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. I think the only way to describe the pharmaceutical industry is labyrinthine. It's just an incredible maze, almost deliberately confusing to everyone. I mean, you know, it's, it's incredible how complex it is. It's amazing how much of a handle on it Aaron has. But my goodness, we've created this unbelievably complex system. And it's no wonder that we cannot untangle it, Don. Yeah, I, you know, I actually feel embarrassed about it after I've been involved in healthcare policy for a good deal of my career. I ran Medicare and Medicaid, but I, this one just remains almost completely inscrutable to me. I try to understand it. And once I, went, I follow one avenue and then suddenly I realize there's a different pathway I should follow. I don't, I still don't understand rebates, although Aaron did good job trying to trying to explain them the the uh the whole pricing scene is is just it's insane and it's reflected in the insanity of the of what i pay when i get my medicines i get these things in the pharmacy that say you saved you know one thousand four hundred twenty two dollars and your actual bills nine i mean what's going on here i, I don't or, or the or the phenomenon of you know two people will go to it's like the three people go and walk into a pharmacy each with the same exact prescription and they walk out having paid you know, lunch money versus, you know, a whole paycheck, you know, like it's it, it a, sounds completely like, sounds, like the first, sounds like the first line of a joke, doesn't it? You know, three <laughs> people walk into a pharmacy. Yeah. It, it is a desperately opaque, significantly opaque area. And I actually have a theory here, which is that when there is regulatory capture, when the, the regulated entities want to capture the system to make it work to their advantage, making it complicated is one of the best ways to do that. Because if the public can't That's understand what I meant. It's it, like, it's deliberately confusing, right? It's, it's so confusing, deliberately yeah. confusing that no one can get a handle on it. And that's part of the strategy. It feels. Yeah. Like and, and the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies in this case have armies of uh, lawyers and public relations people to do what the average consumer or even Medicare cannot do. They just don't have the uh, troops, the resources. Well, we proved it in the conversation. You, we were talking about Agilehelm and, and the fact that CMS does not, I mean, while it did this incredibly important it did this. It made this move during that particular on that particular issue. Both Aaron and you said that that would be very difficult to to do for everything that needs it. Yeah, I, uh, we were talking about something called coverage with evidence development (CED). That's that's a way Medicare can approve coverage. It says, okay, we'll cover this medicine, but only if you pharmaceutical company, continue to gather information over time that will allow us to make much better decisions about how effective it is and for whom. Coverage with evidence development. It's right there in the law. Uh, when I was running Medicare and Medicaid, I looked backward. We were able to, I was able to find uh, 12 cases of coverage with evidence development in the history. In the history of, of Medicare. Yes. Wow. And when we actually looked to see in which cases there actually was evidence development, I think it was like two of the 12 or three of the 12. It's it's a CMS does not have the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services does not have the capacity to implement what actually is a pretty good idea. But the main the main story here, it's a story about lobbying. It is the the enormous penetration of this industry on Capitol Hill uh, in both sides of the aisle. The other, just, the other part of this that I think is is you know it makes it more complicated is uh, there have been a lot of drug breakthroughs. I mean, that's what now, I was just going to say. I was going to say as much as we might try to, I, I don't want us to just 
purely vilify this industry because the truth of the matter is that so much, and you and I have had this conversation last week, we had this conversation in Washington in which we were talking about the fact that so much of the incredible breakthroughs that we've had in health and care in our country and in the world in the last 50 years has a lot to do with the development of novel diagnostics and therapeutics, innovations that are literally saving lives every day. It's, it's right. we have to give the industry credit for that. It's, we can cure hepatitis C, we can change the trajectory of many cancers, yeah. change the trajectory of heart disease, and of all of the innovations in healthcare, uh, devices, surgery, this is the big one, medications. The problem the is that this- that we hadn't didn't have, yeah. You bet. Problem here is that this industry that has done so much good is also doing so much bad. It's uh, through distortions, profiteering, uh, uh, gaming. It's just taking advantage of what of of its position and its power. You have to find a way to keep the good and really tamp down the bad because it is very costly and it's costly for the consumer out of pocket right there at the window. And uh, I think we got to keep that in mind and protect people. So yeah. it's a, it's not an easy job, as like you said. I'm glad we have Aaron Kesselheim there to help uh, yeah, uh, decode this. And then we're going to need a Congress and an administration with some real nerve to keep changing. A Congress and an administration willing to listen to Aaron Kesselheim and others like him. But thank you, Don, for this and uh, look forward to another conversation with Aaron, I hope, in the future. Thanks, Kater. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armante. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the Rx Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.